Welcome back to the 142nd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the loss of face that the U.S. faces on the world stage, Ron DeSantis agreeing to debate Gavin Newsom, and a New York article, Times article talking about a coup that is going on in Niger and the implications that it will have here across the Atlantic. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So our credit rating has now been downgraded. We're indicting a former president, and the current president has a son who's been accused of picking up cash around the world for his family. Now, obviously, not all of these are 100% legitimate. Some are just bolsterings. Even the credit downgrade could be a virtue signal by Finch. It, you know, there are lots of different opinions on it. But no matter what you think about any one of those, the outward appearance of all of these things is not amazing. So my question to you is, has America lost its shine on the world stage? And can it be recovered? And this first article that we'll jump into kind of has a different opinion, and they're making it very sad and kind of melancholy and making it sound like we can never recover from this. And while it's not going to be easy, I think we can, and I think we have to stay hopeful because if we believe that we can't recover from it and everybody has that same mindset, then we won't recover from it. If we have an opportunistic or optimistic point of view, that, hey, this road is still in front of us. We can take advantage of some of the correct choices and make America the shining city upon the hill once again, then I think we can. But throw your comments down in the comment section. Let's jump to the first article that comes from PolitiZoom. America has lost face permanently. We are not coming back from this. Yes, and I took a big pause there because... It is sad, and there's meant to be a little bit of emphasis on some of these sentences with a nice little exclamation point. And you can already see where this author is coming from, so I'm not going to try to preface it too much. I want to jump straight into their first quote. Quote, the other day was an amazing day in American history. A former American president was indicted for attempting to overthrow the government. This is a first in our history, and as a retired federal judge, J. Michael Ludwig pointed out, these events will forever scar and stain the United States in the eyes of the world, he wrote on Wednesday. He lamented that a criminal trial for a former president for trying to overturn an election should never be necessary. Quote, never again will the world be inspired by America's democracy in the way that it has been inspired since America's founding almost 250 years ago, end quote. And I don't, I, that's, that's really hyperbolic on the part of Ludwig. And obviously, we know this author's slant. They're coming from Politizum. But I think it, it's damaging to phrase it that way. They will never look at America as the paragon of democracy across the world. 
Yes, they still can. They can still look at our record, just like we look at back at the Republic in Rome or the Republic that was present in Athens. Even though they did mess up, even though they had lots of faults and problems of their own, and there were lots of different political maneuverings that ended up looking bad through a historical lens, we still look to them as an ideal. So people can still look at what America stands for and not necessarily look at exactly what's going on and still have hope that they could have a system like it in their country. Now, is it going to affect how the next generation growing up looks at America? Probably. They're going to say, well, well, I remember when I was a kid, this was happening here. They were indicting a president, so on and so forth. So there are two tacks here. There's, there's one tack, which is, well, if you really think that this is going to destroy America's image, then why indict the president? And then people would go along the line, which is, well, if we don't indict them, then we look even more corrupt. But also then there's the other tact, which is, well, we have to indict a president. And the fact that we're at this stage is the overall scathing indictment of the American system overall. So I think both of those point of views could be argued out more. But this author and the quote that she's pulling that they're saying that, Nobody will ever look at America the same way, and they can't look to them as the bastion of democracy. I think that's extremely, extremely foolish. Just like every other state before us, there can be ebbs and flows. We had a Nixon crisis where he, or the Watergate crisis under Nixon, where he tried to infiltrate the DNC's headquarters in Washington, D.C. We got past that. Now, Let's be clear, we still have had lots of corruption problems since then, but that is the nature of power. We have lots of different people exploiting their power all throughout history, not just the United States, and to be foolish enough to say that just because we are confronting those powerful people now and they may have misused their power, that the system itself is broken, the fact that we are bringing this up, the fact that it didn't succeed, the fact that we're also prosecuting Biden, or at least in the court of public opinion, both Trump and Biden are in the firing range, all of these prove that the system, while flawed to some degree, no doubt, is still working, and it could continue to work if people are still passionate and they don't give up on the system like this person is highlighting. So the further examination throughout this article is what will happen if Trump becomes president and he is still dealing with the indictment? How is he going to dismiss it? And I kind of want to jump into this one because while the other part is doom and gloom and sad, this part is still trying to portray things in a negative way and be a little bit doom and gloom. But I just kind of find this scenario-making type of article kind of interesting and it honestly is a little bit fun to think through some of these because you can kind of laugh at the stupidity of our system and people may be like well Alex you were just defending our system I am I'm saying our system is beautiful that doesn't mean that stupid things don't happen and that doesn't mean that I have to sit here and say oh everything is 100% legitimate we are super serious here at the daily flip podcast no we can laugh at the downfall of some of the institutions. We can laugh at some of the insanity going on in our culture. And maybe that is why Finch downgraded the U.S. debt, because maybe we're not as serious as we should be. But if you can't have a little bit of fun, if there can't be a little bit of levity, then we really are going to go into that mindset of, oh, it's all over. It's doom and gloom. 
Quote, the scenario in which Trump is reelected president while the federal case against him remain pending is just an absurd and arguably darker. David Frum considered it in a piece for The Atlantic published on Tuesday. The first month of the second term could be consumed by Trump's attempts to pardon himself, Frum notes. If the Supreme Court rejected it, he'd resort to ordering the Justice Department to dismiss the charges against him. Prosecutors there would hopefully refuse and resign. The department would empty out. Trump will not move to fill the vacancies with cronies like Jeff Lee Clark and Sidney Powell. Sorry, correction there. Trump would move to fill those positions with those cronies, as the author likes to call them. Quote, who themselves might require pardons to free them from their prison before they get to oversee federal law enforcement. The Senate hopefully would refuse to confirm said cronies, triggering another crisis. So you could just see how absurd upon absurd upon absurd this is. In order to actually pardon himself, which he theoretically could do, I, I, I believe in pure theory, reading of the Constitution says that he can pardon anybody, so he... he could pardon himself, but then having the people in place to drop the indictments or having the different people around him that would actually be able to facilitate that, it might be tricky, and then he might not be able to get through the Senate, and it's just, it's getting crazy at this point. We're working on hypotheticals upon hypotheticals upon hypotheticals, but the fact that we even have to pretend to game this out is just hilarious. My thing is, and I, I know it's not possible, and I wish we lived in an ideal world where the DOJ could just present something to Trump, which is, hey, you're a previous president. We don't want to cause discourse. We're not going to come after you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop all previous charges, but you have to promise that you're not going to run for election again. Now, there's two wrinkles to that. Trump believe he really did get the 2020 election stolen from him, so he probably would run anyway. But also, I do think there is a little bit of validity to the argument that some people bring up of him running in order to leverage these indictments as a way to raise money to help defend himself and in order to say that he's fighting on behalf of the people, so leverage them into a little bit more popularity, and also as a way to truly protect or at least provide a little bit of insulation while he's running for president he can't necessarily the dog can't really fully use their resources against him or they can't come down super duper duper hard and demand that they he be unreasonable with all these different indictments and the scheduling of them and so on and so forth because he is running for political office and it could be seen as political interference on the part of the DOJ. Not only do some people already see these indictments as interference, but imagine if the DOJ or the courts were demanding that he be in one location the day after uh, another hearing in a different state and after another hearing in a different state and they made it really impossible for him to actually run a campaign. It could be claimed that it is political interference. So there's part of the argument, and some people brought this up, that that's why he's running again, to protect himself from this prosecution or all these different prosecutions that are coming. So presenting him with a deal saying, hey, if you don't run anymore, then we won't bring any of these charges. I think it's an interesting proposal. Do I think that it is actually the best way to go about things? Because then all you have to do is threaten to drum up some charges and then 
have someone sign that, okay, well, hey, we won't bring these charges, but I need you to drop out of the Democratic primary so you don't challenge our candidate. I do think that gets a little bit more hazy and it opens up a dangerous precedent. But it, it, in this case, I maybe there could be an argument for it because I'm just tired of it. I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of this Trump BS. We need to get past this. We also need to get past the Biden BS. If I could have the executive order for one day, or if I could just have executive privilege for one day, I would say, okay, Biden, you've been in politics too long. I'm kicking you out. Trump, you have been too derisive for the party and you are too derisive for the country. You're out. Honestly, it's not even that I don't like either of them. It's not that I don't think some of their policies are okay. Some of their policies are terrible. Some of their policies are okay. Some I agree with. And, you know, it is kind of fun to watch this back and forth argument between a geriatric and a chronic hyperbolizer, if you had <laughs> to put it kindly. But I would just say, get out. Okay, I'm done. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And I think a lot of Americans are the exact same way. They don't want to deal with this BS anymore. They don't want to have to think about Trump. They don't want to have to think about Biden going against Trump or just Biden being president for another four years. They want this to be over, get it done with, get everybody out, and let's have some fresh faces. And that's why I think that this next article is a really interesting one. And it comes from the Daily Wire. Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom agree to debate. So these are two faces of each party that are a little bit younger. They're governors in key states, and they kind of represent, and maybe me being a little bit naive, they kind of represent the new wave of the party. And that's not to say that Newsom doesn't fall in line with the rest of the party. That's not to say that DeSantis doesn't fall in line with the rest of the party at some points. But they could be the new faces of the next generation of long-term leaders of the party. So when they agreed, or DeSantis, because Newsom put this out there a long time ago, when DeSantis finally agreed to debate him on Fox News, on Sean Hannity's show, I thought it was really, really interesting. So I'll read the first quote. Quote, Governor Ron DeSantis announced on Wednesday evening he has accepted Florida Governor Gavin Newsom's debate challenge. DeSantis accepted the challenge during an interview on Fox News with host Sean Hannity, who will host the debate. When asked by Hannity what his answer was to Newsom's offer, DeSantis responded, Absolutely, I'm game. Let's get it done. Just tell me when and where and I'll do it, DeSantis said as the audience cheered. End quote. And, you know, this is kind of a different a different pivot from DeSantis because I'm pretty sure he has avoided this question in the past or at least once or twice. And I think it could be very interesting to see where this debate leads. It could be an opportunity for both of them to grow their name recognition. And if it's a really good policy debate where they go back and forth and there's not obviously one person that stomps the other, it could actually be a inspiring moment to both maybe the RNC or the DNC to say, wow, okay, we have two candidates here. And if they get a large viewing number, we have two candidates that a lot of people want to watch that had a substantive debate that not everybody has made their mind up on that they can both go back and forth. They can't completely drown one, one another out. Maybe this could be a step towards a proper election that is not drowned in all the October surprises, all the indictments, all the suppression of information that we've been dealing with for the last 
eight years, if not a little bit longer. And on top of that, I think it will just be extremely fun to see DeSantis go into a hostile environment and try to take on Gavin Newsom. And I'm also going to be entertained by how slick Gavin Newsom is. Because when he was debating Sean Hannity, how you took that interview really depended on where you stood. A lot of Republicans were saying, oh, yeah, you know, Hannity was able to get in a few licks and Governor Gavin Newsom was kind of being a little bit slick. He wasn't answering everything appropriately. He was trying to avoid some questions. If you were a Democrat, you came out saying, oh, yeah, well, Newsom won that one. He put forward lots of good policy debates and lots of different policy positions that Hannity couldn't necessarily deal with. Hannity had to keep pivoting. And, you know, they also agree that Newsom did seem a little bit slick. So we have someone who's a slick debater in Newsom. We have someone who is a rough and tumble, get in the boxing ring, two punch KO somebody or just shut them down in DeSantis. And I'd like to see we're going to have, you know, an offensive, really come and get you kind of person versus someone who's able to slip and slide and dip and dodge. And it's going to be very entertaining, in my opinion. Maybe I'm being a little bit over-optimistic, but I I think it will be fun. So I'm looking forward to it. So here's DeSantis' pitch on all of this. Quote, Florida has been the number one state for net immigration, DeSantis continued. We have the number one ranked economy, number one in education, crime rate at 50-year low. But in another sense, this is the debate for the future of our country because we have people like Joe Biden. They want and would love to see the Californification of the United States. Biden may not even be the nominee, DeSantis added. You could have Gavin Newsom. You could have Kamala Harris. And if I think we are going down that direction, it's going to accelerate uh, the American decline. We can't see American decline anymore. We need to reverse, end quote. So this is part of the narrative that he's building around this, which is, One, this is really a battle between Florida and California and the different systems in place, and we'll see which one comes out on top. And also, he's really setting it up that, hey, the Democratic Party actually likes what Newsom is doing in California, and if I can come in and I can trounce Gavin Newsom and I can throw him through the ringer, you know, make it a lot harder for him to gain public support, then maybe we can actually fight back up against the Californication, Californication, Californiafication, excuse me, that is a tricky one, of the United States. And I think it's a very interesting pitch. And Newsom's probably making the exact same thing on his end. He's saying, hey, the Republicans, they want America to be like Florida, and we have to push back against some of these crazy book bans or other infringements of people's you know rights to do whatever the heck they want with their body, these sort of things. So Newsom's probably going to pitch it the same way. And it's going to be interesting to see which worldview comes out on top, the Florida or California worldview, and if it becomes something that is a little bit more popularized. And I know I've said and a lot, but and this is also really important, and it kind of just struck me. This is a opportunity for both Newsom and DeSantis to come out from underneath the shadows of the leaders in the party. Now, Newsom hasn't officially said that he's going to run. He probably won't declare. 
But it's a chance for him to come out from the shadow of Joe Biden and set himself different. And this is the same thing for DeSantis. This is a a chance for him to come out from the shadow of Trump, have a policy debate out in the open where he doesn't have to deal with all the other RNC candidates that may be trying to push him a little bit more to the right. This is a place where he can be the conservative and he doesn't have to necessarily concede certain things that he's not comfortable with to other primary voters and he gets a standalone stage to be represented as the conservative that is on the stage representing every other conservative across the nation and i think that's going to be a good chance for him and this is part of his rebuild this is a part of his rebrand he's going into more hostile arenas he's taking on people that are not necessarily favorable to him and we'll see if it comes out and does him well And the reason that this is important that he steps out from underneath Donald Trump's shadow is because recent polls that came in are not looking good for DeSantis. The news comes as DeSantis is trailing only former President Donald Trump in the Republican Party presidential primary, according to the New York Times-Siena poll, which is rated by 538 as the top poll in the nation. The poll found that no other candidate even come close to breaking into double-digit territory for former Vice President Mike Pence, Senator Tim Scott, and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, all sitting at 3%. The remaining candidates all sit at 2 or less. While Trump appears to be the dominant, be dominant at this moment, with just over half of the vote in the New York Times-Siena poll, the poll showed that nearly half of the respondents who chose Trump in the poll, 46%, say that they are considering other candidates. What they don't even mention here is the fact that Trump is up, you know, by at least 20 points over DeSantis. They, they conveniently leave that part out. So even though he's the closest out of all the other candidates, he is not that close to Trump. His numbers have also been declining. So he needs to step out from underneath the shadow. He needs to go into a hostile area and he needs to really build his name recognition and fight Gavin Newsom and really drags him in order for this to be an effective strategy for him to go into debate and it is important that he comes out winning for him to get the nomination if he goes in and he gets absolutely destroyed by gavin newsom then his numbers are not going to do any better so he's probably feeling the pressure and that's why he may have been a little bit hesitant to say that he'd be willing to do this in the first place because he realized it will be extremely extremely huge it'll be a big pivotal moment for him when he either wins or loses But that's enough on that one. Let's jump to our final article. We're moving outside the United States here. And this is something that I honestly didn't know was going on at first. And I saw the article and I was very curious. The New York Times says, quote, not another coup as usual. What you need to know about Niger's crisis. So obviously some of you may not be aware of what's going on. So I'm going to provide a little bit of background, which is the second or third paragraph of the article. Quote, at first, the coup in Niger resembled others that have rolled through West Africa in recent years. On July 26, soldiers detained Niger's president at his home in the capital, Nimeh. Hours later, they declared that they had seized power. Foreign powers condemned the Pouchet, but did nothing. Then the coup took a different course. The United States and France threatened to cut ties with Niger, endangering hundreds of millions of dollars in aid. The deposed president, Mohamed Bazam 
though detained, was able to speak with world leaders, receive visitors, and post defiant messages on social media. Neighboring countries threatened to go to war, some to scuttle the coup, others to ensure its success. The economic community of West African states, a regional bloc of countries known as ECOWAS, issued an ultimatum to the junta on July 30th. Restore Mr. Bazum to power within one week or face the consequences, including possible military action. So, there have been lots of unstable moves going on in the Western Africa region. There has been a lot of Islamic terrorists in previous years, and they have started to subside a little bit as we've seen a little bit more stability come into the region with democratic elections. This one happened in 2021, and now there's a coup. And that's one of the main fears that people in the United States and other nations in Africa are worried about, which is this is actually going to increase the likelihood that Islamist jihadists use Niger as a military base, like some of the other countries that have had recent coups going across the northern half of Africa. So this is something, you know, it's sad to see. We don't like seeing a democracy fall apart. We don't like seeing leaders threatened or jailed in their house, and especially when they're democratically elected. And we don't like seeing militaries coming in and taking over, especially when they could end up threatening their citizens' rights. Now, we haven't seen anything to that degree yet, we haven't seen them, you know, violently hurting their political process, their political opposition. They are just locking the former president, or I mean, still president, but former president, honestly, in his house. So they're not being violent. They're not killing him. They may let him leave, or you know, exile him to a different state. We don't necessarily know yet. Things haven't unrolled. For the most part, it doesn't seem like it's that much of a violent coup or revolution. So I'm on. Uh, to lean on the side of it's not good, but it's not necessarily the worst it could have been. So we just need to let things play out. And the other question that arises from this is, well, okay, France and U.S. are trying to cut off aid. Is that really going to inspire or really make the military leader say, oh, yes, we're wrong. We're so wrong. We went through this entire politically damaging process where we probably could have been charged with treason if we had failed, and now that the U.S. is saying, oh, no, bad boy, we're going to take away your aid, are they really going to reverse their decision? Probably not. All I hope is, and I'm praying for the families in Niger, that they're all able to get through these next few months without any huge political incidences, and that they're able to at least come out of this stable to some degree. So let's talk about the effect on the U.S., Quote, thousands of American and French troops are stationed in Niger to help fight a surge in Islamist attacks across the region. That military cooperation is now suspended as the United States and France exert pressure on the junta to restore democracy. European countries began evacuating their citizens on Tuesday. A day later, the United States ordered a partial evacuation of its embassy. Britain advised against all travel to the whole country. The turmoil and saber-rattling has exposed deep divisions in West Africa. The coup leaders insist they are going nowhere with worries that the crisis could spill over into a regional war. The stakes are rapidly rising. And, of course, you know, this is true with ECOWAS claiming, hey, 
we're going to step in here if you don't put the president back in place. Now, they have stepped up before and gone into, I, I forget the name of the other country. I believe it's Bur, uh, Burka Faus. It's a smaller, weaker country that is within that region when they also had a military coup and they stepped in and tried to affect change. But Niger is a huge country with a much bigger military than some of its neighbors. So actually seeing Igowaz step in, even though they're the generals of Nigeria did say that they're ready to deploy, are they actually going to step in and you know try to forcibly put the president back in power? I don't know. It might be a violation. It might appear as a violation of their sovereignty to some of the citizens who may be a little bit indifferent right now. They may be like, oh, well, as long as my daily life doesn't change too much, I don't care who's in charge. But then a foreign nation coming in and putting the person that they want as president back in power. I mean, that's what the U.S. did for a long time. And we saw how it didn't necessarily go over well with the Shah in Iran. So we'll see how this pans out. I don't necessarily think Ecowaz is willing to step forward and actually do what's necessary in order to implement their will. I think they're just going to use strong words and probably talk about economic sanctions, considering that is their main domain. So why does this matter? Quote, if the coup succeeds, Nigel will be the last domino to fall in a unbroken line of countries stretching across Africa from the Atlantic to the Red Sea that are ruled by military juntas. Democratically elected leaders are falling like bowling pins. Since 2023 of Niger's neighbors, Mali, Burma Faust, that's the name of the other country, I'm sorry for saying Burma Faust, and Guinea have experienced five coups. Niger, though, seemed to be different. Despite a long history of coups, the election of Mr. Bouzma, or sorry, Bazoum, as president in 2021 raised hopes that Niger was on a democratic path. An avowed modernizer, Mr. Bazoum promoted girls' education, sought to reduce Niger's birth rate, and the highest in the world, and oversaw an impressive economic revival. After years of stagnations, Niger's economy had been forecast to grow 7% this year. So there's two reasons why it matters. One, it's probably not going to help the country economically. They may not continue to grow at this current rate, which doesn't help anybody around the world. If we don't have a, an extra market, if a market's now cut off from importers and exporters, then that's probably not good for a lot of countries. Maybe some products that come from Niger or that the raw materials are placed or located in Niger, it could make costs go up across the world. So if you want to look at a purely practical standpoint, but also if you want to look at it in an idealistic way, the fact that another democracy is falling in Africa is sad to see. And when it's a military junta, which is normally authoritarian in nature, not always. I'm sure there are some examples that I'm not aware of, but for the most part, are authoritarian in nature. Do we really want that sort of government around the world? Now, I'm not saying that we need to step in. I'm not saying we have to promote democracy everywhere. But when we know that democracy is a superior form of government that at least has worked very well for us, then it is sad to see when democratic republics or just democracies in general seem to fall apart. All right. I know we've been talking some uh, darker, sadder stuff. So let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Cork Bio. Triple the cuteness at a photo uh, wildlife welcome 
the three new baby red pandas. And yes, the organization is called FOTA, F-O-T-A. It's just a little weird to pronounce. Triple the cuteness is right, and these little guys, they're very, very photogenic. Quote, three new babies have been born at FOTA Wildlife Park. Red panda triplets have been spending the last few weeks of life sleeping and feeding and now are emerging from their nest. And I'm telling you, these little guys, they are cute, but they are ready to take on the big bad world. Quote, the tiny cubs, one male and two female, were born on June 9th and are only starting to venture out into the world under the watchful eye of their mother, five-year-old Lexmi, who has been at the park since 2019. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of these guys or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. And you can find the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post Twitter tirades every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.